worldly realities. Worldly realities. It's a heavy, it's a heavy topic this morning, and I'll talk, you know, yeah. Quoting Bishop Peter, that's our bishop, uh, Father David Batrick commenced a romantic and then sexual relationship with SF while he was still married and ministering as the rector of East Maitland, a canon of the cathedral and an archdeacon. Patrick was subsequently disposed of holy orders, which means he was defrocked. Another one, this is the incomprehensible circumstances that I, Bishop Peter, find myself in are, A, that a priest, Douglas Morrison Cleary, in the diocese that I lead, does not regard being seen naked by a vulnerable young person who is in his care as a cause for scandal. They're just two, just two quick examples on public record of ministers in our diocese in recent times doing the wrong thing. And all credit to our bishop. Our bishop has a zero tolerance of such behaviour and he sends them packing and I'm very thankful for that. Um, let me just be totally clear. Sadly, there are more and we should know better, shouldn't we? We should know better, we must do better. And what I'm about to say doesn't distract or minimise their activities, but we've done Ecclesiastes, haven't we? There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. The church is not alone when it comes to such immoral behaviour behavior and scandal. And again, thankfully our current bishop holds his ministers to the highest standards, well beyond what's expected from the secular workplace. I mean, if David Batrick did what he did in the workplace, people would not care in the slightest. One of our politicians did that very same thing not so long ago and carried on in his ministerial role, didn't he? But for us, the standards are higher, more is expected. Now, what's this got to do with the book of Jude? Well, today Jude breaks down for us why these things happen. Firstly, he talks about, explains the problem is, the, is immor immorality in the church, then he talks about what's at stake, and then he gives us the result. What's going to happen after this? So three things this morning. What's the problem? What's at stake? What's the result? And I mean, look, a word of caution. We're going to speak briefly about same-sex attraction, about homosexuality, about sexual immorality. I mean, I already have touched on that. We're going to talk about these things in general. Because this is what Jude is writing to. This is not my desire, my bugbear, but it is what Jude is writing to. And as Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So we need to take this seriously, see what he's on about, see where it takes us, even if it's a little uncomfortable this morning. But it is my hope that we can do it with gentleness and love. And with that out of the way, let's pray. Take a look at the fourth shortest book in the Bible. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jude. We pray you open our hearts and minds to it and you keep such behaviour out of our church leadership. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just 461 words in the Greek is the book of Jude. You can read it in one sitting, setting. Just second, it's the last book, so it's easy to find. Turn to Revelation, come back a few pages, you'll find Jude. So have a quick skim through that when you've got a chance. Um, it's, it's well worth it. Now, has anyone ever had one of those difficult conversations with someone where you've got to address their behaviour? Like, I have them every other day with my kids, yeah? Oh, come on. Don't you? Yeah. And it's, and it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Particularly if it's with a grown-up. And we would lose sleep over that, wouldn't we? Like, I know I would. And I have to have these difficult conversations. And I've had to have them in the past, employing people for so many years. And, 
and with volunteers too and people within the church, these conversations come up. Lose sleep over it, walk into the conversation, have the meeting the next day, all nice and calm, and it all comes out. Well, that's Jude. Comes in nice and calm and then it's just blah. So get ready for it. This is Jude chapter 1, verse 1. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. He says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Keith said that this means that he is, well, the half-brother of Jesus, because um, James and Jude, but we're not actually sure, because there are a number of Jews, a number of James is in the Bible, so we're not completely sure that's who it is. Jude doesn't identify himself as Jesus' brother. He says a servant of Jesus, but that could be a matter of humility. He puts Jesus' lordship above this half-brother, um, which as he should and must, um, so it could just be that. We're not sure, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, because the, this is part of God's word and we know it's part of the, the teachings of the church. To those who have been called, he says, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. He's like, isn't that a lovely hug? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that nice? You know, that's who you are. Loved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. He's clearly talking to us Christians wanting to be kind and gentle and, 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 and yeah, then look at verse 3. Dear friends, he says, and dear friends, is, this, is, this is where it starts to turn. Like, dear friends, wouldn't he use dear brothers and sisters if he was talking to Christians? I mean, Paul would use dear brothers and sisters, so would others. Wouldn't he use perhaps dear, dear children even? And it's not a derogatory term, it just means dear students. He doesn't use that, he says dear friends. Because Jude is quite clear that he's not speaking just to Christians. He's speaking to the church, yes, but within the church there are Christians and non-Christians. They're believers and there are foxes, foxes in the henhouse. And that's really what he's speaking to. Dear friends, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I wish he did, but he didn't. That would have been a much nicer sermon, wouldn't it? I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. So clearly there's something big at stake. The faith is at stake, and we must contend for it. So it's serious straight away, isn't it? He's just straight into it. So what's the problem? Let's have a look. Verse 4. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slept, slipped in among you. So there's some foxes in the henhouse. Now, Jude doesn't, it's only a brief letter, so we're missing a lot of context. We believe he's writing to the church in Ephesus, to home churches, and this letter's to be circulated. So that's who he's writing to. And in these churches, there's some bad teaching, some foxes in the hen house. But what is he talking about? The condemnation that was long ago. What's he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about Jeremiah 5. It, it could be speaking about just condemnation in general. But here we are in Jeremiah 5. Therefore, this is what Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. Because the people, that's the false prophets, have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth, so the words of Jeremiah's mouth, a fire, and these people the wood it consumes. So the, vault, the, the false prophets that Jeremiah speaks to will be consumed by the truth and the power of God's word coming out of Jeremiah's mouth. And that's how we're to contend for the faith, isn't it? We contend for the faith with the word of God. And that's what we're doing this morning. Just like Jeremiah. And that's what Jude is telling us to do. 
These people he's talking to are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. The logic of these people who are acting in immoral ways, and it's going to be clear what kind of immoralities he's specifically talking to, the logic of these people is simple. And this logic hasn't changed to this day. They teach if, if we are forgiven in Christ, are we forgiven in Christ? Yeah, yeah. If we're forgiven in Christ and Christ's death is sufficient for the sacrifice of the sins of the whole world, well, then does it really matter if we sin? Does it matter? We can, we can just sin. We'll just pray, forgive me. Then we'll keep sinning and pray, forgive me. Isn't that how this works? Isn't that what's going on? That's what he's talking against. It's that age-old argument, love is love. And it's a perversion of the gospel. And that's the reason for Jude's letter. Christ did not die to give us freedom to sin, to take away the accountability of sin in an earthly sense. But Christ died to give us freedom from sin. Freedom to do righteousness, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 6. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin. Sin is no longer our nature, no longer the fruit of our lives. It's no longer our desire, but you've become slaves to righteousness. So we might still sin, and we certainly will likely still sin, but our nature has changed. Righteousness is our nature now. So what's the problem? The problem Jude is writing about is a perversion, not just of the gospel, but of the body itself. We're coming to that. The sins of the flesh. And worse still, it's a perversion of the grace of God. Perversion of the grace of the God. The gift of God has been perverted into a license to sin. And this is the real problem. And this can be done with all manner of sin. Don't think I'm picking on homosexuals or same-sexes or whatever that stuff, but it can be done with all manner of sin. What's at stake? Well, the wrath of God, no less. And in what well, may well be the quickest escalation of all time, Jude immediately jumps into three examples of God being anything but okay with what's going on. The first one, example one from verse five. Though you already know this. So they know the scriptures. They know God's word. You already know this. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. The story we know after freeing them from Egypt, the people continued in their disobedience and God let an entire generation perish in the desert, 40 years in the desert before bringing them to the promised land. And Jude's saying, don't think this won't happen to you. If you think you're getting away with perverting God's word, being disobedient, well, think again. God is not passive. God will allow you to suffer the consequences of your sin. And the truth that we can all attest to when we make bad choices. We eat too much sugar, we get cavities. The consequences of our mistakes happen in our bodies in our lives, and sin is exactly the same thing. Verse 2, example 2, verse 6. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. 
Is Jude speaking to the angels who joined Satan in his rebellion? We see this in Revelation 12. Perhaps, or is Jude speaking to the Nephilim who took on human wives in Genesis 6? Or is this just an obscure reference to the apocryphal, the non-scriptural book of Enoch? We don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is God doesn't muck around when it comes to dealing with our disobedience, with evil and immorality. Keep in your lane is what this is saying. Keep sex in its rightful place and stop engaging in immoral acts with others. And then example three in verse seven. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So clearly Jude is speaking to homosexuality amongst other things. I want to be clear of that. He's speaking to people who think their sin is not a sin, that they're justified in their behaviour, because probably everybody's doing it. And then in verse 9, we're going to skip verse 8, it's just a recap. Verse 9, this is again not a biblical reference, but an apocryphal reference. And he says this, Even the archangel, archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to go into the context of that one, um, but it's simply beginning to point out that the real issue here is not actually sexual immorality. Well, it is, but it's, that's just the symptom of something much, much worse. The heart of the problem, the real problem is using God's word to justify sin. That's the problem. That's what's got him so riled up. People are twisting the scriptures to justify their willful disobedience and their sin. And we do it in all manners of ways. These people, verse 10, they slander whatever they do not understand. They speak against the scriptures they don't understand. And they, the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Now it's serious, isn't it? So they're ignoring the word of God and they're just basing their authority on instinct. If it feels good, do it. We know better. Now, I love milkshakes, particularly chocolate. My favourite is a chocolate milkshake. I love the Macca's chocolate milkshakes. Sorry, I do. They're delicious. And they feel great. They're cool. And it goes down the throat nice, doesn't it? But three hours later, it's not such a great thing. I don't do dairy well. We don't do sin well either. Verse 11, woe to them, says Jude. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. I could spend all day on these three examples alone. Old Testament references, stories to back up his argument. But just quickly, like Cain, they think they can deceive God and get away with it. Like Balaam, they think they can profit. They can profit from God's word, from doing whatever they want. And Korah's rebellion... Well, they ignore the authority of God's chosen leaders. And what's the result of all of this? Well, the destruction is so certain that Jude stated it in the past tense. Did you notice he said they have been destroyed in Korah's 
rebellion. They have been destroyed. Their destruction is so certain. The Jew doesn't say they will be destroyed, they're going to be destroyed. They have been destroyed. The result of using God's word to justify sin is a preordained destruction. That's, you can see why he's so rolled up. The very thing that's given for life and hope and truth and righteousness has been used to justify sin and darkness. Serious stuff. We're not done. Verse 12. These people are blemishes at your love feasts. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper probably. Eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They don't care about their behaviour because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. Their nature is not righteousness. Their nature is still sin. And these people, they're blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars or shooting stars. You know, they're pretty for a while. You know, it's a great idea. And then the flame and then the burning and then the crater in the ground and death and destruction follows. For whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So these people, they outwardly participate. They go through the motions. They may even come across as nice and kind and it's a good person. But inside they're spiritually dead. What's the problem as we wrap this up? The problem is a perversion of not just the gospel but the body itself. The problem is using God's word to justify sin. What's at stake? Well, the wrath of God's at stake. People taking God's word seriously at stake. Salvation is at stake. The church is at stake. We, the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are at stake. And what's the result? Destruction. Blackest darkness. At our synod a number of years ago, when the whole same-sex marriage thing was happening, our synod, which is a gathering of the Anglican churches in our region, a few people from the church come, there's I think four from each church, and we set kind of our doctrine, our rules, and we do all that at synod. Um, it's a pretty boring occasion mostly. But this one, they had a debate on whether we should bless same-sex marriage at our synod. And great, whatever. But... Then they started talking about allowing clergy to be in same-sex marriages. And stacks of people got up and spoke against it. Heaps spoke in favour too. Um, I got up and talked, and I just couldn't get a word out. And I just left the pulpit in tears. I just couldn't believe that our church was considering doing something so contrary, so obviously contrary to God's word. I got back to my seat, a bit kind of emotional, and Julie Pike was there. I don't even know Julie Pike. She just says things the way it is. Love Julie for that. And she just leans over to me and, and you know, in, in a word of comfort, and it was great comfort. She goes, look, look, those people talking about this, all I can hear from them is exactly what the devil said to Eve. Did God really say that? All of their arguments were just simply, did God really say that? Then they would seek to kind of undermine God's word with their own, with their own desires. Julie got it. These deceivers, those who push immorality, they twist God's word to justify their sin. Their only authority is instinct. The love is love. Like that of an irrational animal, to quote Jude. Well, our authority, the authority to stand strong, the authority to save people 
from hell to the authority to teach and to preach. It's the very word of God, and the word of God will never fail. Now, I'm almost done, and hasn't this been a fun message? Aren't you glad you didn't bring some friends this morning? I mean, they'd be offended by all this, wouldn't they? They'd be so offended by Jude. Never come back. They think we're bigoted, exclusive somehow. We're, we're homophobes, judgmental. Maybe they just think that's just me. Whatever, but that's what they're going to think, isn't it? And then we, we've got to be careful as a church. We don't want to upset the world, do we? We want to, we want to take it easy. But they'd be wrong. We must never forget, and this is one argument that no one out there can refute. The Christian church is the most diverse organization in the world. Statistical fact. Doesn't matter your sexuality, your race, none of it. The Christian church is the most diverse organization in the world. If we were bigots, this would not be the case. There's no club, there's no group, there's no rainbow brigade. Nobody can claim true diversity except we, the Christian church. That's it. Why? Because the only people we exclude from our gatherings, and we do exclude some people, the only people we exclude from our gatherings are those who have no sin. If you have no sin, get out of your seat and go home. You're not welcome here. That's the only one who's people who are excluded from our gatherings. Let me share a story. Uh, mainly music's out of hand. I've been talking about it for weeks. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. It's out of hand. Now, I don't know if you know the story of why we do mainly music. We came here, the Presbyterian Church, they've been running here for seven years, have been running mainly music, um, and it was okay. But they shut their doors the week before I started, uh, and they asked, do we want to take it on? And I go, oh, all right, I've done it before. Mainly music's very gentle on the faith, very gospel soft. You know, they kind of have a few God songs, God loves you, that's about it. There might be one of those, maybe two in the program. There could be a, an opportunity with a prayer card somewhere where you could kind of write a prayer. That's it. It's meant to be soft on the gospel. And, and I asked the people who are running it at the Presbyterian Church, how many people come to church out of your mainly music program over the seven odd years you're running it? None. Not one. Now, don't get me wrong, we don't do outreach, we don't serve our community to fill, put bums on seats, right? That's not our goal. We do that because Jesus says to love our neighbours. We do it because it's good for our souls, for our hearts, to serve and to love others. That's not why we do it, so don't get me wrong. But we still do have to be somewhat pragmatic. If we run all of these programs that just serve our community, our church will eventually die out, and then those programs will die out too. So there is a little bit of pragmatism. We do have to make choices on what ministries work and what don't. All right, so... We continued it on anyway, a couple of years, COVID hit, and it built up to about 40 odd people coming each week. And after COVID, Ali and I are like, oh, do we, let's not restart that. Let's not, let's not. Thought, oh, well, come on, those people love it and the families love it, they really do. And it's good fun, it's good for us and it's good outreach and, and all of that. And I'm going, well, okay, well, if we restart it, why don't we just, we'll just, we'll just blow it up. Let's make it so Jesus that these people are going to be just insanely offended and they're going to not come back. So I thought, let's do that. What's, what have we got to lose, right? Like mainly music, you know, let's just give it a shot. So we come back, all guns blazing, and there's a God song, a Jesus song, every second song, it's Jesus loves you, he wants to know you. We stop halfway through now, or in a quiet bit, and I invite people to church, I 
offer to pray for them. I talk about our different programs. We outwardly pray. We, we, we prompt people. We give them flyers constantly. You know, we just, we just fully just saturated the program in Jesus. And yes, a couple of people did leave. At first, when we started doing all the Jesus songs, they would just kind of go outside. And then they left. Just a couple. But now the program, but then the program just started growing and growing. And now there was like 65 odd, I think, at the end of the term, and another half a dozen or so on the wait list, families. The program is bigger than ever because the gospel grows, the gospel saves, the gospel is good news. And we need not be afraid of books like Jude and what it's teaching us. We need not worry. God's got this. Churches don't fail because they preach the gospel. They fail because they don't preach the gospel. They fail when they compromise on the gospel. They fail when they avoid the difficult issues. They fail when we allow leadership to live lives contrary to God's word. That's what Jude's on about. That's why he's coming all guns blazing. He's coming because he wants to protect the church and he wants it to grow. And a healthy church will grow. Now, Jude is to be continued. We didn't read the whole book. We're going to have one more message in it next week. I left the last half dozen verses out. That's the good bit. That's the happy ending. But I left it out because I'm going to leave this to be continued next week. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for Jude. Thank you for this book. Thank you that we are to struggle with your scriptures because change of heart requires struggle. Lord, we just pray we take it to heart. We hear what you're saying, that we welcome all and that we love as you have loved us. Build us up, Lord Jesus, in your word. Amen.